2: Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB, Talk 860, and womentowatch.net. We are um, in the studio this afternoon, and I'm going to be joined by two women. Um, at the very top of the show, we have our monthly contributor, Tish Squilero, with us. And afterwards, our uh, very special guest, who is um, very well-known in the Philadelphia area, a local woman, um, very, very successful Um, advisory firm that she has built here. And her name is Candida Sisak. She's the founder and CEO of CTS Associates, uh, which, again, is an advisory firm for mid-sized companies here in the Philadelphia area and beyond. Uh, But we're going to start with Tish, who's going to be talking about corporate culture. And um, I know it's a it's a hot topic. It's something that um, we read about often these days. It's, it's probably a different description from what we used to call it um, years ago. But corporate culture is something that um, is important for any size company. And uh, we welcome Tish back to the show to talk about it. Hi, Tish.
1: Hi, Susan. Happy New Year.
2: Yes. Happy New Year to you. A little belated, I guess, right? It's the first time we've spoken. Yeah. That's right. New year, new things. Right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's going to be a. It's it's going to be a very exciting 2017 for a lot of reasons. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Um, but yeah, so I want to talk to you about this this corporate culture that that is something um, that you help uh, executives with in their own companies and organizations. And why don't we you know first define it? What exactly does that mean when you say corporate culture?
1: Sure, and you know, with the beginning of the year, I thought this would be a perfect topic for people to think about because culture isn't just the sum of how leadership makes decisions and how they communicate. It really is the personality of the organization. It's based on the values and the traditions and the behaviors of what's happening. And so we spent a lot of 2016 talking about emotions and behavior. And you know, I wanted to bring it all together. To what end? What are we really looking for when we find this stuff out about ourselves and our and our teams? Is that we begin to define what that culture of how and what's going to make us successful? So that's how I look at corporate culture. It's really having a sense of the personality of what fits in and what doesn't fit in into the business culture or the team culture you're trying to to put together.
2: And would you say the best way to determine a culture, you know, when you walk into a company is is to ask the employees, you know, what what do you feel the culture is around here?
1: Well, and that's it. We forget the basic things, right? What's basic about how we go out and do stuff? Well, one is find out what your employees think. Ask, you know, and also observe. And part of our, you know, focus on behavioral styles was that observing and learning how to observe. But you also have to ask and assess where people feel things are, and then it doesn't hurt to kind of throw out a survey here or there on a particular topic to get people's view. I mean, what you don't want to learn is on Glassdoor or one of those sites what your employees think. And many times that's when people start to feel the breach that there's a culture problem is because they're hearing about it from an entity that is outside their company and not really... Something they can control
2: well, w- would you not say that a culture is is ultimately determined by the person at the top? Don't you think that th- their values, their um, um, philosophies and Candida's chiming in are a trickle down to the you know the um, what's set in place for the employees and and what the rules are you know that it all really starts there.
1: I do think that they have the wand that orchestrates everything together. So, yes, I do think that their ability to be aware and recognize things does come from leadership. But I don't believe it's the only thing that they have to be the one that own it. I do believe it's a compilation of all of it because that's what allows the organization to flourish is the – the multitude of the variety and the different styles that form that culture. But the person and the people at the top can also be the ones that drive it, right, because they have to be aware and make sense of it. I think that's the part that's very critical because they forget that part. They don't always look until there's a problem. Tell me, um, Tish,
2: you mentioned in your notes establishing a culture of psychological safety. What does that mean?
1: Well, you know, people perform when they're comfortable and people will excel when they're happy at what they're doing. And when we went through utilizing behavioral profiling to understand people, because not everyone can read someone else just by meeting them. You want more information. You want to know their comfort zone. You want to know where they have conflict issues. You want to know what environments are they best in. Well, psychological. Safety is around that. It's knowing enough about your teams, your folks that you work with that allow you to put them in situations that will foster that behavior, that will make them comfortable, that does make them feel they're in the safe haven. And when you're hiring people, you have to look at both their skill set and their behavior because skill set can be a black or white thing of whether or not they fit in. But behavior is going to be determined by that type of person, and this is where I find when people hire and they make you know, onboarding programs, they're not looking at both of those things as well, and this is where they're shocked when someone's not working out or don't realize where things didn't go well. It's not recognizing those pieces of where were their values, their traditions, their behaviors fitting in with what we built here as a company. So if I'm if
2: I'm listening and I'm a CEO or the a president of a of a company whether large or small um and I want to take some actionable steps to enhance the culture are there some things you know um very specific things I could do to to help implement that
1: Yes I think one is involve your human resources um executive or professional to help because they will have a pulse of what's going on, and I think that's an imperative piece to understanding who knows what's going on with our employees, right? That's something important. The second is use surveys as a way to do that by asking a particular question about a very particular topic or something that's going on that could be a change or anything that allowed you to have a way to get a sense of how people felt about something because it is about emotion and it is about how people are responding to situations that could be one step and then the other is you know the way we talked about using profiling you know get to know your folks so that you could help guide the right career track for them the way they're handling things that are going to foster change will it be comfortable if you know more about them in on your team. You'll probably make better choices for everybody. And then look at yourself. You know, where do I fit in? What are my values? What are my traditions? How am I factoring myself in this? So it's not just about them, but it's also about me executing in ways that foster the type of environment I like this to be. Well, and
2: here's a question, how about the the leader Sharing with their employees what their own strengths and weaknesses are, so in other words when an, when employees know their leader better, I think that opens up you know much better communication and and action from the employees because they understand um you know their leader and and how they respond
1: and leadership is about influence and inspiring others and one way to do that is to put yourself out there and be very open with who you are and how you operate. Right. And I'm not sure if people always are comfortable doing that because they may not even know how to articulate it, one. That's right. And, two, they may not be portraying the person in the style they want, and so they have to actually work on themselves then. And then working on yourself means that you've got some stuff to do. That's right. So it opens up a lot of things that they may not be ready for, but it, it is the right way to go. I mean, it is the right first step, mm-hmm. is when you recognize your strengths and where you're focused and what is important to you, then see how that marries to what is right for the organization and all the employees that are there and what you're hearing from them. If you can match those, that's a great marriage. If you don't see it's matching, well, now you have a target to work on. So that's also as positive. If you ignore it or avoid it, this is where we start to see businesses blame the corporate culture on everyone else and haven't really looked at if they played a role in that
2: mm, right yeah i think i think we all do that sometimes um listen tish great as always um great t- tips and uh you know something for people to think about and trying to improve you know the the culture that they work in i appreciate your stopping by and um we'll be excited to see what you bring to us next time
1: Thank you, and and I love Candida. She is an amazing, amazing woman, so perfect as a follow-up to corporate culture because it is something that she does look at in every piece of what she does. I know. It's going to be a a very
2: easy transition to Candida. (laughs) I thought about that when I I looked at the two of you coming on back-to-back.
1: So great. Listen, enjoy, and have a great day, and stay dry.
2: Okay. Thanks, Tish. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Um, So I'd like to introduce, as I said at the top of the show, Candida Seasock, and and Candida is um, the founder and CEO of CTS Associates, which is an advisory firm for mid-sized companies. And real quick, I want to give out the call-in number if you're listening and and you'd like to call into the show and and speak to Candida directly. Feel free to call 888-329-3306. That's 888-329-3306. Candida, welcome to the show.
3: Thank you very much.
2: I appreciate your coming in on this incredibly awful day, uh, weather-wise. It's, it's windy, it's rainy, and I think it's pretty much the same way across the country.
3: And I ran between the raindrops. And you did.
2: You. And you made your way in. You're, yes. And now we're warm and we're safe. Yes. Um, so, listen, I you know first of all, you and I met years ago, um, which was uh, wonderful for me. So many people, when I started out in this business, said, you really should talk to Candida Seasock because <laughs> she knows a lot of people. She's a stellar networker. and, and, you know, that your reputation precedes you. And and I just wanted to say that at the top of the show because it says a lot about you that more than, you know, one person said that I really should connect with you in in trying to, you know, just kind of help myself move forward. Um, So I'm very happy to have you here today. And um, I'd love to start out with your background and growing up years as we always do on the show. and. Give the listeners a, a sense of where you came from mm-hmm. and what has led you to this place and, and a little bit more about your journey. So we'll start out in Italy, where you were born, Milano, Italy, um, and it wasn't until you were eight years old that you moved here to the U.S. So tell me about those early years and, uh, and your family and, and
3: what it was like. Well, um, my mother um, was sponsored to America, from her sister, who was already here. So she came here with my sister, Anna Maria, and myself. And um, it's just kind of like the, the movies. You, you, um, we were on a ship called the Christopher Columbus. Okay. Which uh, has now been docked and retired. And uh, the first thing I saw when we reached the uh, waters in America was the Statue of Liberty. And as an 8-year-old uh, child, I was very impressive my mother, uh, myself, and my sister settled in Camden. Camden was the hub of, of all nationalities that would come here, and most everybody worked in factories or bricklayers or hairdressers or seamstress. And uh, you build a new life here. You had a new chance, a new opportunity. And uh, my mother was uh, a great role model, and my sister was probably the best role model I could ever have. Do
2: you remember that like it was yesterday?
3: I remember uh, coming into the harbor. It was dark. It was night, but the Statue of Liberty was impressive.
2: Were you afraid or were you okay because you were with your mom and your sister?
3: Um, I think at that age, when you're eight, you don't know enough to be afraid. You look at everything as an adventure. You know, I crossed the ocean on the ship for eight days. Um, I was... uh, I think there was eight little kids on the ship, so we had the run of the ship. <laughs> um, and it was a steam liner, so it was a two-something two, uh, two something or other steam liner. So it was pretty big. Um, so I don't think at that age I was afraid. Yeah. The world was mine.
2: The world, it's a new world. It was exciting. <laughs> That's right, Yeah,
3: exciting. more
2: exciting. Tell me, what what um, was the catalyst for your mom making the decision to leave Italy and come to New Jersey, of all places, <laughs> right?
3: Yeah, and in those days, you know, Camden, Brooklyn, there were all the hubbubs for immigrants, mm-hmm. and I think it was the opportunity to provide for her two daughters and give them the ability to become, you know, financially independent. Um, but before you even get there, you, you, as a mother, she had to provide for us, um, and poverty was in those days is not as today. You were poor because maybe you didn't have the money to go to a movie or out to dinner. Um, we always had 10 cents in our pocket in case you had to make a phone call. And we did go to Catholic school mm-hmm. for 12 years. Um, and that has a whole different impression. Poverty didn't mean you were not clean or not educated or not well-pressed or not well-mannered. It just meant you didn't have the money to do certain things.
2: Did you have any family here?
3: So my so, my uh, aunt. My two aunts.
2: Okay, so your mom wasn't coming completely alone. Right. To and uh, tell me, um, what did she do upon arriving? As far as you know, um, earning an income.
3: She worked in a factory sewing um, coats, and then uh, five years later, she became an American citizen, and went to work for the government. Uh, I think it was the Manufacturing Depot at Ninth uh, and. I think it was Ninth and Christian. I'm not sure. Somewhere 9th and Johnson, which uh, they they uh, they made the army coats, the military coats. And uh, I have several pictures of her with the generals receiving awards for the uh, kind of work that she did. So um, even in her own way, she was a leader.
2: Yeah. Well, again, just to make that trek over
3: here, and you know, daughters. and start all, start yeah. all
2: over with two children in a new country takes, I think, a lot of courage.
3: Yes, a lot of courage, a lot of determination, a lot of focus. And uh, I always think she could st- stretch the dollar to a million.
2: Yeah, yeah.
3: They were always good at that. Yeah, that's yeah. true.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, so you, as you mentioned, you spent 12 years in Catholic school, and um, I'd love to know what, what activities were you involved in growing up? Were, did you do sports? Were you on student council? What kinds of things did you do?
3: In grammar school, I survived because I had to learn English. I didn't know English. Mm -hmm. Um, I probably was extremely active. Um, Never liked to stand still in class too often, too long. So I was always down to principal, and my sister always had to bail (laughs) me out. So when I was in the fourth grade, she was in the eighth grade, so... Thus, her coming to bail me out when I got oh, called you're down the Oh, you were eight years
2: apart? Or Four
3: years apart. Four years apart. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. In high school, I got involved in sports. Running uh, was a passion of mine. I mm-hmm. continued to run for um, a long period of time. I think uh, I stopped running somewhere in the 90s. I stopped running races and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved sport, but I knew that staying after school for a sport was not a good thing, so... I got involved in the topology, which is math club, Mm -hmm. um, and headed that club later on when the guy graduated that was the president of the club. Um, So I was always fond of saying to my mother that I was staying after school for educational things, even though I was in the running group. (laughs) (laughs) It worked,
2: yeah, so
3: got the last bus out there you know, you like got home, <laughs> right, you
2: got home safe and sound somewhere in my notes. I read that you said you sh- you should have been a doctor,
3: oh yes,
2: right? so when you were growing up you kn- tell me tell me what those aspirations were. you clearly you know took the route of business and uh, both on your own and for major corporations um but I was curious why you made that statement about should have been
3: Cause a doctor. i I have a a deep passion for medicine um I didn't have the ability to study, study and become a doctor, nor that I have, uh, I guess, the eyes or the patience for it. I'm <laughs> playing on words here. But anything that had to do with medicine, uh, still now, I, my family, they, they tell me they have a cold. They try not to tell me. Because I've got all the home right You're
2: going to diagnose them? I'm going to diagnose them.
3: <laughs> um, I've actually diagnosed people through email and where they should go, which doctor they should use, what <laughs> hospital they should go to. Um,
2: the one thing doctors tell us never to, to do, do, right? Correct. I do no, it all. Don't Google <laughs>
3: symptoms. That's right. <laughs> don't go to WebMD. <laughs> um, and I, I think because I could never be a doctor at that time, I never thought I could be, I think I... Inverted it into helping people out and being a, uh, yeah, some sort of medicine doctor <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to give them advice.
2: <laughs> no, that's interesting. And they tell me yeah. I
3: don't take my own advice, so I guess Problem, it all works out right? fine. Who does?
2: <laughs> Who takes their own advice? Right. Um, no, that's interesting. You had you had this desire to help people, mm-hmm. right? And so, as you said, if you didn't have the opportunity to go to medical school and become a doctor, you're still helping people that's in right. a whole different way, right?
3: Yes, and I think I took that um, helping not just in in the many jokes about me and giving medical advice but into helping people connect, helping people understand um, entrepreneurs understand how to build their companies or nonprofits how to do whatever they need to do to be a solid nonprofit um, and helping people when they're um, looking for other opportunities. Um, how to present themselves, how to pull things together. And I do all of it uh, not for money. My business is my business. My passion is my passion. they are two different things.
2: Did you always have the ability to connect with people?
3: That started um, somewhere in the late 90s. I realized that somewhere in my brain I had connected um, information that I could connect one person to the other. And by the time 2003 came about, uh, I realized that I was doing it without anything called the Salesforce. It was all in my head. I would remember things that people would say and then realize that that person should get to know that person. And I started making those connections. Um, and then in 2004, um, I was part of an organization that uh, was about um, people helping people. Tell and me, I started to use it very widely then and I realized that was a gift I had that I didn't know I had.
2: Well now that obviously that's a gift that you can use um for men and women, mm-hmm. anyone that you come across in your life. But at some point in your career um it was important to you to help women specifically. Tell me about that. Why 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 was that important? Why is that
3: important to you? I think Um, in grammar school through high school um, I I went to college in my 30s. I realized that women did not uh, stand up for themselves. Um, They always played a second role to something, whatever it was. And I'm not talking about mothers that have children that decide to stay home and raise their kids, which I think is admirable and wonderful because that's the the children they have or the business people of tomorrow or the people of tomorrow or the citizens of tomorrow, um, I just realized that women were not becoming creative enough to retool themselves for uh, for the business world. So little by little, I ended up uh, coaching them and helping them out and uh, telling them where to go, where to find help, what to do, what not to do. Um, And the more I got into management, um, the more I became a titled person, like a VP or a CIO, the more I understood that women needed to collaborate and work together as opposed to not helping each other out. Because in that generation, I found that women were not helping each other out. Women were more... um, I guess, critical of each other rather than collaborative with each other. So I guess without, without realizing it, I think I went on my own campaign to make sure that those things would change.
2: Did you always have the ability yourself within you, the confidence to speak up and advocate for yourself, or is that something that developed in you over
3: time? I think that developed because I think my attitude was when I lost a job, I'll go get another one, or if I can't do that, I'll do this. And I don't think I want to do that again, so what value do I offer the next company? How do I sell that, and how do I get the job? So I don't know where I got that. I can only think that it's between my mother and my sister, my mother being an entrepreneur coming to this country and my sister always being the force behind my success.
2: Tell me tell me about your relationship with your sister because i you know I read in, in in a lot of the notes that she's been an incredible inspiration for you, and aside from the fact that she's your sister, what is it about her? what did she do that um, allows you to to always point to her as someone who has been
3: an inspiration in your life? There's always someone in your life that you can look at and uh, Um, realize that when you hold their hand, they'll always be with you. You could be a rebel, you can um, be a saint, you can just be an average citizen, but there'll always be the equalizer in your thinking. There'll always be the force behind your success. But you don't realize that, you don't verbalize it, but you see it through the years. When... Things come to your mind. Or where did you get this advice and what did you think about? And I've always realized my sister always had the best common sense and the best advice that anyone would give me, uh, knowing fully that I was very um, um, adventurous. <laughs> my sister was in the same job for 40-some years. She was a teacher before that and then in, in the travel business. Highly respected by her colleagues and the company. Um, I could never last in a company 40 years. I'd blaze a trail out of there. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, and she always helped women, and I could see that. Um, She made it through college, not, you know, we, we came here. She went to high school. I went to grammar school. So we didn't speak English. So she learned English, went to high school, and then went to college right away. Whereas I was the, the different person, decided I'm going to work, make money, and maybe I'll go to college. And then I realized when I was 30, yeah, without college, I'm not going to make any more money. Yeah.
2: So so what were you doing before? And you, by the way, you got a degree from Rutgers yes. University. Yes. Mm-hmm. What, what did you do prior to that? Because that's not the normal path to, you know, wait until your 30s to go, to, to go um, get your
3: degree. The best thing um, I had done was my aunt gave me $600 to go to IBM Tabulating School. You learn technology. Okay. And then from there, I went to work for a company which is now called Amerisource Bergman. At that time, it was called the Druco uh, um, Drug Company because the drug company um, supplied everything to drugstores, and then it got bought by Druco, then Amerisource, and then Amerisource Bergman. Okay. So, yes. And by the second time they got bought off, I said, the heck with it. I, don't. I kept getting pushed down the ladder, so I went and found another job. I don't like being pushed down the ladder. Well,
2: you know what? What I see in you is this. When you got to a place where you were not fulfilled anymore, you weren't going to wallow there. You were going to, you know, make a decision and make a change.
3: And I knew that I wasn't going to fight city all and win. Mm. But I knew if another company would look at my value and hire me, then I was moving up. I was moving forward. Whether it's up or across, I was moving forward.
2: And that was important to you? Mm Mm-hmm. So when you I'm going to jump ahead a little bit because I want to know what um the aha moment was for you when you decided once and for all that you were better suited to start your own company and work for yourself. You had, you know, you worked for several different companies. Yes. <laughs> and um you know, at one point you I'm I'm sure there there was a moment when you thought why why am I continuing to do this when I am I'm just much better suited to be my own boss? <laughs>
3: Well, um, I think I was realizing um, the first time I was on my own, I had a bookkeeping service. I did bookkeeping, and then Deloitte hired me, and then I got my college degrees with Deloitte, and then I played CFO for a couple of years and decided I didn't like that, so I kept my promise to the managing partner at Deloitte that I would try uh, staying in accounting and then getting my CPA. We both of us came to the conclusion it was not for me. So in 82, I opened the company. I graduated in 81, 82. Um, The partner in charge at the time uh, gave me my first client because he knew that I could automate the clients and would never take the client for accounting. I would just work on um, supply chain and order processing and accounting. And I grew my business, and 90% of it came from accounting firms. So one accounting firm recommend me to another. I automate them. I automate their clients.
2: Tell me, as CFO, what was it about that role that, that wasn't right for you? Was it, was it the lack of opportunity to really work, engage more with no,
3: the No. To people? me, numbers are, and this is with all great love to all CFOs, to me, numbers are stale. Numbers only change if sales and marketing and operations collaborate, bring in business, the numbers, the revenues go up, the costs go up, you know, profits go up, whatever. Um, to me, numbers were stale. And once at that particular company, I set up um, the, accounting, the accounts payable, accounts receivable, payroll, dealt with the union, dealt with insurance. When it was all done, I was bored. I was like, now what? I'm looking at Numbers. I want to deal with people. I want to solve problems. And I had stopped doing. Once I had them set up, there was, in my mind, nothing for me to do. Yeah. So having my own company and rolling out technology uh, to supply chain manufacturing, um, I actually automated a gold mine in Eureka, Nevada. Um, to me, that was exciting because the clients were always changing and always different, mm. new challenges, Um You probably get the baptism of fire when you're always going to new companies because you have to learn quickly how to adapt to their culture, their way of doing business, the employees. And you're always a threat when you're an outsider and always making sure that you're not a threat to them. You're a benefit to them. Mm. So you learn really quick to do that. And that's why I couldn't be CFO. Accounting to me was, uh, was standing still and it's, my feeling, not the real feeling. Mm.
2: And you know, it's interesting because some people enjoy that. I guess deciphering that. Mm-hmm. You know, what those numbers represent. I'll say, and and other people need to be on the back end of that. What's yeah. what's creating these these numbers? The fluctuation
3: one, up and down. One of the things that I do that I started three years ago is build advisory boards for sized companies. Mm-hmm. And I some I actually have a model that's unique. But one of the things I do. Is I have financials go last because in an advisory board you could stare financials all you want they're not going to change. If we can help change the company's sales and marketing strategy or their operations or the collaboration,
2: the culture, the as culture, Tish talked about absolutely, yeah,
3: uh, and how the culture is affected from the top,
2: yeah. Listen, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk about a wonderful award that you received, the Alice Paul Institute Equality Award back in 2014. I want to talk about that when we come back. We'll be right back.
1: There are 365 days to schedule a mammogram. Today is as good as any. Holy Redeemer Breast Care makes it easy.
2: I'm pleased to announce the opening of the region's newest, most innovative gynecology practice in the Philadelphia area in mid-November, Montgomery Gynecology. Led by Dr. Hema Janogada in a welcoming boutique style setting, she and her team are committed to providing the highest standard of cutting edge care without losing the personal touch that is so very important in today's world. With a particular interest in minimally invasive surgical options, Dr. Hema completed advanced training in robotic surgery and is one of only two surgeons in Montgomery County who performs this highly specialized single-site robotic surgery. For more information on the opening of this exciting new practice in the convenient Plymouth Meeting location, go to www.montgomerygyn.com or call 215 444 that's montgomerygyn.com or call 215-444-3411 to make an appointment today. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Women to Watch on WWDB Talk 860 and womentowatch.net. My name is Sue Rocco. By the way, I often forget to give my name. Um, <laughs> <laughs> And I'm joined this afternoon by Candida Seasock. She's the founder and CEO of CTS Associates here in Philadelphia. And uh, we were learning all about Candida, where she came from, and how she got her start in in uh, launching her own business, which is always wonderful. Um, one of the things I read, and, and you've won – Many awards. Um, but one that stood out for me was the Alice Paul Institute Equality Award. One of the reasons I loved to see that was because Alice Paul was a, somewhat of a local woman, right? Mm-hmm. Born and Moorestown. raised in, in Morristown, New Jersey. And um, she really was a pioneer um, if we want to talk about the, you know, women's equality movement, um, she had a, a great deal to do with it. And you received that award, obviously, because people recognize your contributions. So I wanted to know what, first of all, what that award meant to you, and, and what do you think is one of the things you're most proud about in your own contributions um, to women that you feel they recognized and saw in you, to give you that award?
3: Um I was very honored. In fact, when they called me up, I was driving down to Turnpike from uh, Bethlehem, and I thought somebody was playing a joke on me. <laughs> and I kept saying, okay, you're kidding. Who's playing the joke? And they finally got through to me, and they said, oh, no, we're, we're giving you this award. Um, I, I w- was very honored um, because among those awards are women from uh, CEOs and COOs and universities and have um, in their life now have uh, uh, much more uh, responsibilities in the sense of a corporation or a university than I do. I've I've gotten out of that. I am the CEO of myself mm-hmm. and my clients. <laughs> right. And um, I think the the moment that became so important to me was when I realized that by getting this award, it would solidify for my colleagues, my friends, that women were very important. Um, I was honored at how many showed up at the event um, and how many actually got involved with the Alice Paul Institute, which uh, exists. Uh, at, it's called Paulsboro, and it's still in Morristown. And it's still at Alice Paul's house, and how much, um, how much they have accomplished uh, throughout the years. Uh, I was deeply touched by the young ladies that actually take do the interview because they're the ones that announce you as one of the winners and how they pull everything together and they're like 17 years old and I was amazed at the uh, at the ability that they have so young uh, I guess when you get this old you forget you were young once <laughs> <laughs> um, and it put me back in touch on the meaning of uh, of helping women, uh, whether you get an award or not, um, and h- what it means to move our cause forward and the meaning of us
2: so that's a great segue into you know um what happened this weekend you know <laughs> I don't think we can um have a conversation today and not mention the women's march, which happened you know across the country, and uh, I want to know I want to ask you what what is it that is What is the message that we want people to know when we talk about why it's important for women to have equality? I mean, there's obvious answers to that question. Of course, Mm -hmm. right? Men and women are equal from an intellectual standpoint. We have the same abilities, the same dreams, the same desires. But can you point to one reason you think it's so important to advance women in business and across all industries, For the greater good.
3: That could—that's a question that could take hours to answer, but I make it very short. Women have proven um, throughout the years and decades that they're a strong force to support. whatever job they're in whether they're mothers whether they're secretaries or admins whether they support their husbands um, we are able to do problem solving multitasking and lead but it was always done around the home front I think once we started going to the workforce it became a challenge for the opposite sex Because now we were leaders. We needed to be nurtured. We were obviously problem solvers. We understood cultures. We understood business. We produced revenue. We built companies. We sold companies. I think it was hard for the change to the world that did not see us that way. They saw us as mothers, as nurturers. And if you look at a lot of the women business leaders they are nurturers, they built relationships and that's where they get to where they're going um, I think the movement needs to be the equality of women receiving and being respected as donating to society and the wealth of society needs to be put on paper and it needs to be accepted by all the states in America. Unfortunately, the, uh, the Equal Rights Amendment was only ratified by 35 states out of the 38 that we needed. So now if it goes back to Congress, it has to go back to the beginning. The irony of all this, that women throughout the last 40, 50 years have actually moved ahead of the Equal Rights Amendment. We've actually moved the movement where we are successful women. We are mothers, we are wives, we are successful women. Maybe not all in that order. Um, And we are a lot respected for that. But it's not solidified in writing, and it should be. And the Equal Rights Amendment is not just about women. It's about anyone that deserves to have equal rights, that needs to have the equal rights. It should be human nature that we give equal rights to everyone. Somehow we have to put it in writing. So it should cover all the bases.
2: Do you think that by having more women <clears throat> involved in policy uh, making is, will help us get to that place?
3: More more women women in politics. More women in politics, more women leaders. Because the undercurrent, we've been doing it. We've become independent. Um, I would say the East Coast and the far West Coast, probably women make out better in in those states. Um, But we've had to fight for it. We've had to – we were not part of the boys' network. So we've had to fight to get to where we need it to be, and it's still not as it should be. I think, um, I'm thinking as I'm talking here, the benefit of the Equal Right Amendment would be to bless that and allow people to look equally at everyone that produces the same job, the same problem-solving, the same leadership, with the same dollar amount, the same salary, the same benefits, the same bonuses. It's not here.
2: Individuals, right? Individuals. looking at people individually
3: as opposed to groups. We're not even doing the groups. So individually, yes. What we offer, what we donate, what we do to help a company's growth, Mm -hmm. those jobs should be paid equally no matter who you are.
2: Well, I think the the first step always for change is awareness and having conversations. And when things are transparent and out in the open, um I think that change
3: will be is inevitable. I think change if it's out in the open and we're pushing for positive change, if it's done in a positive sense and I was very proud that the the women's march was basically um Uh, It was an eventful situation, an eventful across the United States, but nobody was harmed. It was not a demonstration. It was a lot of conversation, a lot of talking, a lot of pointing out the facts and some things that are probably not so positive, but overall it was very positive because we need to make sure that our leaders understand what women believe in, what women need to have. You know, when, because we've been serving for years.
2: Right. Well, here's the irony in what, to me, um, you you said was, um, if if you go back to the very beginning when women were basically more mothers, nurturers, mm-hmm. you know, caretakers, those skills that they have are actually what um, help businesses thrive.
3: What's the uh, the ability. Right. The ab- to apply.
2: That's right. That's right. And to me, that is the irony. So when you see that, um, you want to embrace more women, you know, out there leading and, and mm-hmm. running companies. The truth of the matter is, is sometimes it, it is difficult to be caring for children and be a mother and also run a, a large company. It just gets a little more complicated.
3: But most women that are CEOs of companies probably have live-ins. And I know Quite a few husbands that are not in the CEO worlds like their wives, and they take more of a back seat, and they mm-hmm. pay, you know, stay-at-home mom, but they're only stay-at-home dads. Yeah. And they love it because they see a different world. Yeah.
2: Um, Candida, let's talk about your company for for a little bit. And um, as I mentioned, you you work with mid-sized companies in uh, technology, medicine, um,
3: supply chain, manufacturing. Yes. Uh, the board.
2: Yeah. Now, tell me what differentiates your, uh, I think you said you have an independent um, uh, program, I'll say, or, or a program that's a little bit different from other advisors, what you feel works the best when you go in and help a company. Tell me, Explain what that is, how you are different.
3: Um, <laughs> I have a good sense of humor. Hey. Um, I always go into a company telling myself I do not know more than them. So I spend time understanding their culture, understanding uh, the relationships within the company, because I usually work with the CEO, mm-hmm. listening, understanding, and try to put pieces together so that we can start talking about strategy, uh, roadmaps, approaches, organizational charts, things that helps move the company forward and grow. Without a strategy you don't have a roadmap to grow. And I uh, always uh, make an analogy to running um, because I used to run a lot of races, but you get to know the territory before you run the race. You know your strategy from race to race, whether you're running a 5K or a half marathon. You can't run a marathon unless you've done some kind of running, unless you come in falling apart. But take that and help companies understand and to stay on that strategy, to stay on that course, to provide that financial security to all the employees besides themselves, the owners, you need to do certain things, and you need to make the culture as positive as possible.
2: Mm. And we talked about that at the top of the show. Um, you you have said candidly that you do not want to work with companies that do not value and respect the inherent human aspect of employees and customers. Tell me what you mean by that. And I guess my my greater question would be why would why would a company not see that or understand the importance
3: of that? Uh, I think sometimes, um, and I deal mostly with um, uh, family owned businesses, um, partners. So I I'm taking where the company is by the time they get to me. And uh, what I see is that they want to become successful, but they want to do it their way. And when you have a company, it is not their way. It is everybody's way. And they become self-centered and becoming billionaires, and they forget that the rest of the workforce is not going to be a billionaire but that they need to achieve certain financial goals, certain security in this world of companies where they either get bought, they merge, they transition, um, they go from one generation to another, and people are very insecure in their jobs. So the more you make them secure, the more you provide the, financial, the proper financial uh, salaries or, or bonuses or commission, the more you make the culture positive the more you will be able to reap your own benefits. Companies forget to do that, and they become self-centered. The owners become self-centered.
2: Can you give me an example where you may have gone in and, and really changed the mindset of, of a leader and, um, you know, seen the, the, the rewards of that? or They've given you that feedback, that thank you for giving me that, um, that insight and that awareness.
3: Um. I cannot name the companies. No, Some but of right. companies, <laughs> yeah. Some of the companies, I'm not even on their website. Um, I'm the best kept secret. Uh, <laughs> when an owner of a company says to me, I didn't see until you explained to me what the challenges were. That's one of them. Because if they begin to see, then they will help to make the changes mm-hmm. and help the company grow. And it could be for a multitude of reason. Um, you got one owner who's real good with the employees, and you get the other one is subterfuging everything. So how do you split from your partner? How do you split from your brother or sister? How do you put in the right direct reports that represent you? Because you, the owner, might have had a very positive culture, a very great relationship with your employees, but now you have certain layers in between you that have to adopt the way you respect the employees. When they talk to me about that, um, and the light goes off in their mind Mm -hmm. of what they need to do to make the company successful, which makes them successful, and when I start seeing them programs that support the employees, um, that's when I feel the gratitude. Mm. Um, Most of the time on boards, you get a a small stipend, but I always say the board that gives me a bonus because they've reached their goals both how they care for their employees and their financial goals because you can't drive financial goals without the employees you know pushing up hills or Mm -hmm. pushing the car or pushing the business forward Um, that's a real positive (laughs) yeah
2: so you know it really is always about relationships definitely yeah so tell me how you handle because a lot of people struggle with this when you come up Against someone, I'll say who, who's resisting that kind of change. Um, how do you break through? What what kind of language do you use with them to help them see the importance of of their relationships you, to their employees, as opposed to just implementing, you know,
3: you policies? can't implement policies or anything. So you can advise, and then when they're comfortable, you can bring in. In my case, you would bring in people to do specific work you cannot make people see what you're seeing that they're doing to themselves or not doing to themselves. It's an evolving thing. It evolves. And you get to a certain point, then you realize it's never going to evolve and you just walk away from the business. Or if the client decides that um, they're going to go back to their old ways um, and they don't care about the goodness of the employees, the strategy... Or their relationship outside. They're they're the um, it's their way or the highway. I usually walk away. And for me, when I lose a client, you know, it's it's my business. So it's not. It's I usually take it hard, but I rather lose the client than be in a negative situation.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and
3: because I can use that energy for another client. It usually happens if. If I lose a client or don't get a client, there's someone always there that says, hey, I want to hire you because I, I really believed in what you said last year. I'm like, okay, it took him a year. It's better than not well, taking a year. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know that you know relationship building can take a long time. It does. It does. It never happens overnight. Yeah. You have to develop a trust.
3: Very much so because yeah. they're, they're going to confide on a lot of things that has to do with the business and they want to make sure that it stays confidential.
2: Yeah. Let, let's t- We have, you know, a few minutes left. I want to talk about your advice for young women who are looking to start their own businesses, you know, that perhaps they've been in this corporate culture that is not working for them, they're not feeling fulfilled, and, um, you know, what advice would you give them, number one, to take the step to do it. That's the, you know, that's the great, that that leap of faith that they can um, do something on their own. And uh, what's some great advice for what to do at the very, very beginning to kind of establish yourself?
3: Well, first of all, you have to study what your value is to whatever you want to create. Whether you want to bring a product to market or whether you want to open a restaurant And what strengths and weaknesses you have. And then figure out who around you can fill in the weaknesses.
2: Do you talk about vision and mission with people?
3: Not until they understand their value. Value first. Yeah, the value of themselves and what they can bring and what they can do. Then you can build the vision of the company. And then you can build the strategy of it. Then you can build a roadmap. Then you can figure out where you're going to take it and how you're going to take it there. Um, I advised them to go very cautiously and be much more curious up front before they try to put time into building something that there might be too much of it in the market. They might not be able to... If it's a product, they might not be able to get financing. If a, If it's a restaurant business, they need to understand the amount of work that goes mm. behind it. It's not just...
2: That's a glamorous kind
3: of idea.
2: It's very, very
3: hard. I try to bring the common sense approach to it, as opposed to the exciting approach, because the excitement goes away when you don't have business pretty fast and you don't have an income. Yeah. So try to give them more of a uh, think out whether you can do this or not. Um,
2: I want to mention that you started um, a a women's group. Mm-hmm. and it's WCXO. Correct. What are your goals for this group for women?
3: It's interesting. The, the, the vision is for collaboration and collective thinking and helping each other out. And what's happened to the group is where I had um, women that were already successful and up the ladder, lately I've been, um, the applicants have been women that are in their 30s or 40s. That Wanting to get to that point. Wanting to get to that point. Mm-hmm. So I'm beginning to have a very equal balance between the ages and where they are in their careers and where they're not in their careers. And yet the young directors or the young VPs or managers are very successful in what they're in. Um, the goal of the organization is to the women to help each other to talk, to collaborate, to build relationships, to have coffee, um, to give each other advice in, their, in, in the companies they're in, to and men- feel free to do that,
2: Yeah, uh, do you, to mentor you, each to other. Mentor. So you're looking to bring the women who've been there and done that yeah. to the younger women. Right. Um, Candida, I, I thank you so much for taking the time to come in and sit with me today to share your story. I know how busy you are.
3: Thank you. I'm honored, and I'm welcome. Thank you.
2: Thank you. And uh, you can find Candida if you'd like to connect at?
3: Um she's LinkedIn under Candy the Seaside. There you go. That is my only website. <laughs> okay,
2: there is no website. But LinkedIn which is a great yes. great platform. Um that is it everyone for this week of women to watch. I thank you so much for listening and I hope you have a great week.